You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. I'm Pio Nanavati. And I'm Joe Records. On today's episode, we're speaking with two partners in the healthcare group in the DC office, Kelly Hibbert and Jed Wolfcody, about the, the process and approach for uh, Medicare plan sponsors and Medicaid managed care organizations to establish affirmative recovery programs, which can help them comply with their obligations under CMS requirements to combat fraud, waste, and abuse, and, and also to recoup funds that were wrongfully obtained, among other things. Let's turn it over to Jed and Kelly to provide some background. So why should companies consider establishing an affirmative recovery program? Well, thank you both for having us. Um, so I think as a starting point, one of the interesting things is that every year the government recovers billions of dollars in ill-gotten gains related to fraud, waste, and abuse in various programs. And every year, a bulk of that does come from the healthcare side. And I think Kelly can talk a little bit more about the substantive parts about why a company should develop a recovery program. But one of the things that we think is interesting to think about is that every time, or mostly every time, the government is damaged from a particular scheme, so too are the various healthcare plans. Thanks, Jed. And I echo the thanks to both of you for having us on today. So there are lots of reasons uh, that a plan or other entity may establish an affirmative recovery program. Some of those were alluded to um, in Joe's introductory remarks. Um, as Medicaid uh, uh, MCOs or Medicare sponsors, um, you are somewhat obligated uh, in uh, playing that key role in combating fraud, waste, and abuse and that there are regulations and requirements that, again, obligate those entities to uh, try to root out fraud, um, just as the DOJ does in their everyday fraud and abuse practice. DOJ released their uh, annual statistics, breaking down their fraud and abuse, their key TAM cases, all of the things related to their False Claims Act uh, enforcement. And just as we've seen kind of through the last 10 years, really, the majority of the recoveries in 2022, uh, I think it was $1.7 billion out of the $2.2 billion in recoveries came from the healthcare space. Um, that included drug and medical device manufacturers, durable medical equipment, home health and managed care providers, hospitals, and so on. Great. So how would, well, how does a, a, a company go about beginning to structure uh, an affirmative recovery program? So I really think it starts with being able to access and understand the transaction data that these companies have in-house. One of the interesting trends that we're seeing in false claims act actions is that, historically speaking, a lot of the DOJ enforcement-related priorities and recoveries were instituted by what are called whistleblowers or key TAM relators. And back in 2014, that number was something like 70% of all FCA settlements or judgments um, were instituted by a whistleblower. Um, and the remaining 30% were kind of the DOJ-initiated actions. Um, fast forward to 2021, and that number has essentially flipped to 70% of successful FCA actions being instituted or, or initiated by DOJ investigations with the remaining 30% now being attributed to whistleblowers. And so what the DOJ has essentially done working with its client agencies like 
CMS, um, for example, is being able to look at the CMS transaction data and understanding where there is anomalies, where there are claims that are potentially um, the result of fraud. And this is the same type of data that these large managed care organizations or health plans have in-house. And they can do the same type of analyses that DOJs. I think you really need to keep in mind about three really key uh, concepts or questions you should be asking your business uh, in, in determining whether to uh, engage in a recovery program and how to structure it. Number one, how are you going to identify opportunities? And this goes a little bit to what Jed was saying too. What sources of data or information does your business already have available to it? Maybe it's through the SIU program or a payment integrity or program integrity unit. And then number two, what resources will you need to investigate? Do you have uh, people resources? Do you have uh, technology resources that you will need uh, to investigate potential fraud? And again, this can come from your SIU department, from your PI department, or it can come separately through something you build in, say, the litigation department. And number three is what resources will you need to support litigation? Can you pursue, can you support the pursuit of more than one opportunity at a time? And there's really no answer that's better than another answer. These are just the kinds of questions that you want to be asking uh, when you're starting to think about how you might structure a recovery program in-house. So Kelly, it sounds like the, the DOJ has a set of tools to combat fraud, waste, and abuse. And then plan sponsors and managed care organizations are playing a, a parallel complementary role in, in finding and addressing fraud, waste, and abuse. And, and really, it's the plan sponsors and managed care organizations that are kind of the, the first line of defense. Yeah, Joe, that's exactly right. It really does start with the plan sponsors, but we can take kind of what we're seeing in the FCA context and compare that to what we're doing in terms of affirmative recovery on behalf of plan sponsors. And, and that really means that we are protecting the interest of plan members by pursuing opportunities to recoup overpayments. Um, that result from, you know, any number of legal claims, whether that be fraud or breach of contract or other claims that we may pursue. Um, but it really is, you know, outside of the context of what the DOJ is doing. But like you said, very much parallel. And we can see a lot of um, similarities between the types of cases that the government is looking at, the types of actions and conduct that the government is looking at, and what plan sponsors should be looking at in terms of a recovery uh, program. And in terms of the why, I just want to pick up on something that Kelly said earlier in terms of protecting the interest of plan members, because um, I think that's a really important aspect um, of healthcare recovery. And to me, that includes health um, safety costs, um, all of the things that I think are incredibly important to the plan members. But in addition to that, I think there's a good corporate citizenship angle um, to creating a healthcare recovery program as well. And I think as Joe mentioned, um, the plan sponsors and Medicare, Medicaid managed care organizations really are the first line of defense against fraud, waste and abuse. And so there's an aspect to it of really protecting the integrity of the Medicare and Medicaid programs. 
One thing to keep in mind is that recovery programs come in various shapes and sizes and that no one shape fits all. The recovery program, in terms of of what you're thinking about building, it can and should be an arm of and supplement to your existing litigation team, whether that's one person or many. And smaller programs can exist. They may rely more heavily on outside counsel to identify, investigate, and litigate claims, but they do exist and they can exist. Larger programs, on the other hand, may be able to leverage robust SIU or PI programs to internally identify opportunities. But just going back to what I said earlier, there's no right answer uh, and there are opportunities for all programs of all shapes and sizes. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, You raise a good point there. So I just want to bring it back to Jed and ask if you could talk to us a little bit about how both in-house counsel and outside counsel work together to not only develop their affirmative healthcare recovery programs, but also to manage those programs. Absolutely. And and we really do view it as a partnership in terms of, of our working with healthcare plans to identify, investigate, and potentially bring affirmative healthcare recovery matters. And starting from the in-house perspective, to us, the in-house counsel plays a huge role in developing these types of programs. Um, they, they coordinate with the business folks. Um, one of the things that we, we think is particularly important is, you know, obviously getting business buy-in to investigating and spending time and resources in terms of trying to find out what opportunities are available, um, and then coordinating with outside counsel as well. And so for us, what we really try to do is partner with our in-house colleagues And what we try to do is survey the landscape of potential causes of action, of potential fraud, and bring that to our in-house counterparts who can then investigate and figure out whether this is a viable cause of action or to the extent that their plan is potentially damaged. That's right, Jed. I think one thing to keep in mind is that outside counsel can and should be used as a resource in every step of uh, your recovery program. And the degrees of reliance will really depend on your program's needs, like we talked about before. But outside counsel can help anticipate needs, identify opportunities, investigate claims, or perform uh, merits and damages analysis before you even uh, decide to pursue an opportunity in the recovery space. And partnering with outside counsel really has great benefits. Uh, One of those is that you're outsourcing time and effort needed to investigate and to litigate those claims. You also share risk through um, various fee arrangements. They could be contingency or, or something else, but it, it allows the business side to share in that risk of pursuing that opportunity. And I think there's also a huge benefit to using outside counsel because you are able to develop a partnership, like Jed was speaking about, for a long-term recovery program development. Kelly, I think you touched on this um, a little bit, but in the in the sort of the work that you do, um, partnering with in-house counsel and developing recovery programs, what are some of the strategic considerations that you would kind of work through with those organizations? Thinking about things like um, bringing bringing actions in a group or uh, dealing with litigation uh, financing or, or other approaches? Sure. Look, I think they, the list of things to be considered is potentially endless. It is at least very long. You're looking at uh, resource management. 
you know, how big is this opportunity? Is it something that your both business side and litigation departments are able to handle? And one thing to be considering in that is if you are pursuing an opportunity through arbitration or litigation, what are your discovery needs going to require? You know, how many business folks are going to need to be interviewed and potentially deposed, um, which could create some disruption to your business side of things. Um, The other thing which you touched on is finances. Uh, Is this an opportunity that is worth pursuing for the business? And one thing that will have to be considered in that is what relationship uh, will be impacted by pursuing the opportunity. These opportunities arise because there is a business relationship between the sponsor, the plan, and the entity in which has committed some sort of bad act and uh, received money that they weren't supposed to as a result of. But there is a business relationship there. And whether or not the plan sponsor is willing to disrupt or potentially impact that business relationship is a really key consideration. And I think Kelly's exactly right. So one of the questions we typically get um, as we kind of move down the line of through through investigation to potential litigation is what are the other plans doing doing in this space? And so one of the key considerations for us is, is this going to be a single plan bringing a one-on-one action versus um, another entity? Um, or is this going to be a group of plans filing some type of group action against a, either a single defendant or a group of defendants. And there's lots of considerations that go into that, but that's always something that the plans ask us in terms of what does the overall landscape look like? Thanks, Jed. Yeah, and let, let's talk a little bit more about group recovery actions because there is a lot of strategic consideration that goes into uh, the decision whether to file as a group versus whether to file an individual actions. And there's pros and cons to both approaches. One of the pros is really related to cost sharing. Even if outside counsel is absorbing costs in an affirmative recovery opportunity, it's beneficial to the group as a whole if those costs are not duplicative in nature. So there's not, you know, five individual actions being pursued at the same time in five different jurisdictions, all um, duplicating costs across the board. It's it's nice to have those bound up together in order to make that more cost effective. There's also a reduced risk of inconsistency. Um, This really comes out in in our legal um, strategies and legal implications of the cases that we see. If there are those five individual actions pending in five different jurisdictions, you have five different triers of fact, um, in fact deciders, law deciders, courts, that are making decisions that might be inconsistent and make it more difficult as a whole to pursue those opportunities. So pursuing a group action allows for a reduced risk of that inconsistency. And finally, it's beneficial to um, have the ability to pool knowledge and experience if you are pursuing a group recovery action. There, uh, it allows you to um, put together a lot of bright minds Um, at a lot of different entities that can, again, help to drive strategy and uh, pursue those opportunities for your entity. Jed, can you talk to us a little bit about litigation financing? 
Absolutely. And this, I think this topic can be a entire podcast in and of itself, but just to kind of touch on it briefly, I guess one of the key questions is, of course, in, in any long-term litigation is, you know, where is the funding coming from? Um, sometimes, as, as we talked about earlier, there's a risk-sharing arrangement, a contingency arrangement between the law firm and the client. Um, but the other potential avenue is, is what's called third-party litigation financing. And for those that aren't familiar with it, it's essentially a non-recourse funding option where a, a, a third party can finance part of the litigation. Again, non-recourse, so it's, it, it's there's no obligation to pay the money back in the event that there's no recovery. But in return for that, the third party who's financing the claim is gonna want or ask for something like a two times multiplier, a three times multiplier, sometimes even more. Um, and so the, the money is incredibly expensive, but at the same time, it can either allow a law firm to potentially take on long complex litigation matters at no cost to the client while monetizing a portion of their attorney fees, costs and expenses throughout the course of the litigation. Or secondly, a potential client who wants to monetize a portion of the recovery to come down the road in order to increase predict predictability. Well, Jed and Kelly, thanks so much for your, for your insight here. Really appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you both. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.